Welcome to this week's Pushkin House podcast. I'm delighted to have as our guest this week, Dara Goldstein, speaking to us from the US. Um, where are you, Dara, in the US? I'm in a small town called Williamstown in the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. It's about three hours west of Boston. Fantastic. So the reason we're talking to Dara today is because she is uh, well, she is the author of many books, but her latest book has recently come out and it's called Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Law, L-O-R-E. Dara Goldstein is the Wilcox B. and Harriet M. Adsit Professor of Russian Emerita at Williams College and founding editor of Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture. Um, Dara has been traveling to Russia since the 70s. I think that's correct, is it not? Yes, 1972 and has written several books on Russian cooking, Russian hospitality, and Russian homes. There's a, there's a, a, um, a common theme of interest in Russian hospitality um, in her books. Uh, she's written five cookbooks. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything you'd like me to add to that, Dara. I mean, there's another thing which really interested me that you were a national spokesman for Stadichna Vodka. But are there any other things from your very rich um, uh, career biography that you would like to add to this? Yeah, I mean, being the Stoli girl was a highlight of my life, I have to admit. I am also a literary scholar and I, I um, published a book, it was Cambridge um, University Press on Nikolai Zabolotsky, the Russian poet. Fantastic even though I've moved away from literary studies, that he's been a very important figure in my life. Fantastic. Well, um, the range of your work is um, very close to the heart of people who follow Pushkin House, where we explore Russia through um, many aspects of, of, of culture. Um, so um, Beyond the North Wind, this is a fantastic recipe book, Dara. I've been trying out a lot of the recipes and I've been enjoying it very much because what struck me as soon as I opened it was this wonderful mixture of um, genre in one book. You have these fantastic photographs um, by Stefan Wettinen. Is that right? The pronunciation? Wettinen. They're fantastic. They're beautiful pictures. You have these wonderful recipes that you've clearly gathered through traveling there. There's a, there's a travel log and there's memoir and there are these short essays about Russian folklore. Um, can, can you tell us something about the title? Why is it called Beyond the North Wind? What, what is Beyond the North Wind? Beyond the North Wind, in a certain way, I had this image of an onion. <laughs> there's a lot of onion in Russian cuisine. And if you peel away those layers, you get to the heart of the onion and it's very deliciousness. And I feel as though for many people, Russia is this forbidding place. It seems like it's cold and it's dark and it's snowy and the people don't smile. But if you start peeling away those preconceptions and you, take away the layers of uh, the propaganda that we've heard or certain attitudes that we have, you get to what is really at the heart of Russia. And that to me is hospitality and a quite amazing culture, a lot of wonderful people. 
So beyond the north wind, the sense was to go beyond uh, whatever we think Russia is and to find out more about it. But the title specifically refers to a Greek, ancient Greek utopia called Hyperborea that was described by Pliny and Herodotus. And uh, it was a place where the sun always shone and there were tall, blonde, beautiful people. And most importantly, it was the birthplace of technology. And they described how you had to travel over mountains and beyond rivers to get there. And Russian geographers were very intrigued by the idea of hyperborea, which literally means beyond the north wind. And they ascertained, whether scientifically or not, that the place uh, where Hyperborea existed was the present-day Kola Peninsula above the Arctic Circle. I see. And do you know what period? Do you know when in so the Soviet period they they investigated this? Yes, there were three revolutionary geographers who were looking into it, but it became much more fixed in the popular. Uh, popular culture in the 1960s. Mm. And indeed, uh, above the Arctic Circle, the sun always shines in the summer, at least, for three long months. Uh, the first settlers there were the Vikings, so tall, blonde, beautiful. And the Russian sagas talk about these wondrous towers that managed to capture the moon and the sun and the stars. And that could have been an early form of astronomy and therefore technology. So it all seemed to hold together to me. It, initially, I was quite skeptical. It seemed like something hokey. But the more I investigated it and these amazing labyrinths that still exist, stone labyrinths uh, on the Kola Peninsula, particularly the Solovetsky Islands, and there was a cult of the sun, I felt that it all connected. It's so interesting. Um, and in, in your introduction, you write about people of the north of the Kola Peninsula um, having a slightly, uh, having a kind of national character in a way um, that you connect to the cooking and the resourcefulness they have to use to make delicious food in challenging, in a challenging climate. Could you say something about the, the people that you found there, or at any rate, the sort of local culture? Yes, uh, it, it's very cosmopolitan now in many ways because uh, people have moved from all over to that part of the world over the centuries. But originally there were indigenous peoples, including the Sami, who are perhaps the most well-known in the West. And uh, beginning in around the ninth century, people from central Russia started moving towards the north. This was encouraged by a couple of things. Uh, one was the great schism in the Russian Orthodox Church, when the old so-called old believers wanted a safe haven, and they moved out of the realm of influence of Muscovy, uh, the center of power in Moscow. And again, um, also during the time of Ivan the Terrible, uh, whose rampages were well known, people fled to the north. It's a little bit like in the United States, people going to the Wild West. Mm -hmm. It was virgin territory. The Mongols had never gone that far to the north and the west. 
And so it was a bit wild. And they intermarried and became a distinctive group known as the Pamor, which means by the, by the edge of the sea. And they fished a lot, they lived off the land, they developed very important salt works. Um, vegetables grow quite beautifully there during the short summer season because there is so much sun. Really, and what kind of vegetables grow well there? Oh, all sorts of root vegetables, uh, beautiful beets and carrots and turnips and onions. Uh, hearty grains like barley and rye. Oats were very, very important. They had the most abundant riches, I would say, from the sea. Some of the most beautiful fish and seafood that I've ever had comes from the area around the White Sea and the Barents Sea. And all of this produce and fish they had to preserve for the long winters. So they developed wonderful techniques of fermentation and salt curing, smoking, drying, uh, everything that was abundant in the summer they put up for the winter. And I should also mention, which might be interesting for your listeners in the UK, that John Tradescant, who uh, was the, the founder of, uh, I believe, the Ash was it the Ashmolean or was it the Botanic? Museum at Oxford, the Tradescant. Yes, yes, of course. I can't remember at this very moment, but of course, he's an incredibly important figure for us in gardening and botanical history. Yes, so he went to um, Archangel Arkhangelsk, which is in the area I describe in my book, and he said he had never in his life encountered more wonderful berries, more abundant berries, and also the honey. And I should add mushrooms to that list as well. So even though it seems like a, a, a barren sort of environment, it's actually very rich. That's extraordinary. And the other thing that comes across very strongly from your book, which is very interesting and unusual for, um, in connection to Russia, is that, it, that Russia feels like a more manageable size because you're just looking at this peninsula, but you're looking at very typical Russian cooking through this particular place but it feels like a coherent uh, culture there and that really interested me that it, instead of having all these different influences from Central Asia or from the Caucasus um, or from Europe suddenly there was this feeling of kind of self-containment. I'm glad you picked up on that that was actually a struggle for me I, my very first cookbook, which I published in 1983, looked at Russian cuisine writ large. So it had a lot of influence of French cuisine from the 19th century. And then, as you mentioned, from the Caucasus, from Central Asia, all of these foods that came in during the uh, Soviet era under a kind of culinary imperialism. But I wanted to get a what was really elemental about Russian food without external influences. And so I tried to think of a very narrow uh, palate or a very narrow pantry, I should say, um, where there was a limited range of ingredients, but showing Russian ingenuity and how many different things 
delicious things could be done with them, turning them into pies and uh, having a kind of uh, indigenous Russian sushi that is made with fro frozen fish that is shaved very thin and is quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I worried about leaving out uh, a lot of favorite dishes that people have come to associate with Russia, but in the end, I think it's okay. I did allow for some, a few tomatoes because they grow wonderful tomatoes in greenhouses there. So I figured it was allowed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was um, pleased to see some familiar uh, dishes in there like borscht and kulibyak, although your kulibyak is a bit different, but I was really grateful for that because um, this is slightly jumping ahead, but um, you uh, simplified the recipe a little bit. So it didn't have that pancake around the inside of the crust. And as you say, in, in the way you write about it, you don't have that sturgeon's backbone, not that I would ever have been able to do that, but um, as a gelatinous sort of holding together, but um, I made it. And I mean, I'm not a, a, I'm not a very advanced cook. I made it, made it in an evening. It was delicious. Um, can you say something about how you approach the kulibyak, what the kulibyak is and why you decided to simplify it? Yes, uh, kulibyaka is one of the great Russian pies. And it's a, a big, rather celebratory pie that is oval in shape. So it's an elongated oval. And it is a fish pie that uh, traditionally has many different layers. It was adopted into French cuisine in the 19th century and became kulibyak. And then it got a, a puff pastry crust or a brioche crust. And the layers were separated by the Russian, the thin Russian pancakes known as blinchiki, which are uh, thinner blini. Uh, they're like crepes. And then you have sauteed mushrooms and onions and buckwheat or rice. You have salmon, you have sturgeon, you have dill, hard boiled egg, I hope I'm not leaving anything out. <laughs> and all of these are, are piled into layers and you make a hole in the top and you pour some butter in and the whole thing is just glorious. But it takes pretty much an entire day to make, especially if you're making the pancakes by yourself um, and then making the crust. And when I was in Murmansk, which is a, a large city up above the Arctic Circle, I tasted a beautiful form of kulibyaka that was much simpler. One of the things that was so different from all of the other fish pies I had tasted in the European part of Russia is that here there was a lot more fish relative to crust because mm. fish is abundant. Whereas say in Moscow, there's a lot more crust because fish is more expensive. So I inverted the proportions and instead of using the pancakes, I decided just to make a, a mixture of fish, like a stuffing or a farce, and put that inside a crust uh, that is quickly made with sour cream instead of having to rise for a long time. And there you have it. Well, I, I liked it very much because it, it was very light. It wasn't, it wasn't too heavy and... And, and yeah, um, no, I think it's a great variation on, on the kulibyak. Um, and as you say, very rich in fish. Um, and 
I wanted to ask actually about the restaurants you visited because in the book you mentioned that. Um, could you say something about how you researched the book? I I sense that you you travelled there. It was it was in a, you probably had an adventure. There's a sense of exploration in the book, and that part of that was going to to local restaurants and discovering um, the resurgence of local cuisine, and part of it was going to private homes and trying food. Was that the case? And could you tell us something about your trip or trips there? Yes, I, when I got it in my head that I had to go to the Kola Peninsula and the far north of, of Russia, I wasn't sure what to do because I, uh, it was an unknown territory for me. And during the Soviet years, when I had been traveling to uh, the Soviet Union a lot, I desperately had wanted to go north, but it was closed to foreigners, so I couldn't. So here, finally, I had the opportunity and wasn't sure how to start. But I got in touch with a friend who has a wonderful organization in Hirkenes, Norway, on the border with Russia. It's called Pikina Pobrun, the Girls on the Bridge. And it is an arts organization that puts on this amazing Barents uh, festival every year. And she herself is Russian and is from a, a town not too far from Arkhangelsk. So I asked her if she knew anyone in Murmansk, which is not too far from Norway. And she put me in touch with a wonderful woman named Oksana Arjamova who in turn put me in touch with uh, some wonderful restaurateurs in Murmansk. And that was one prong of my research and they helped me enormously. But I still wanted to go further east. And so I started, this is one of the wonderful things about technology, just blindly emailing tourist associations in the different regions in the Russian North. And to my surprise and delight, I got an enthusiastic response from the Arkhangelsk Tourist Association saying that they were working on a gastronomic map of the region and I could be a sort of case study and they would set up an itinerary for me and my husband and send us all around to these remote villages where they were still making extraordinary foods in centuries old way. So thanks to them, uh, we were able to visit places that I had never even seen on a map. That's, that is just fantastic. So in a way, this book is not only you interpreting um, recipes and what you know of Russian cuisine and what you've seen there, but it's a document. It's a document. Uh, is that why you called it Russian Recipes and, and Folklore or Law? Yes. Um, and I also wanted to... Uh, I think the title is romantic and poetic and the lore also seemed, I, I don't think you can sit and eat, or at least I can't sit and eat a meal without thinking of all of its associations and the connections to uh, Russian history, to Russian folklore, to different aspects of Russian life. And I really wanted that to be part of the book. One of the most surprising moments for me was being in a very tiny village uh, in the Arkhangelsk region. And they served a beautiful gingerbread. 
that region has, I think I need to do a book on Russian gingerbreads. There are easily a hundred different kinds, but um, I told them about a gingerbread I had tasted in another village that we had gone to and they had added cardamom to it. And these people were stunned. The village was only 10 miles away, but they had never considered adding cardamom to their gingerbread. <laughs> and it was this revelation. And it just showed me how intimate village life was and how even with rapid communication today, certain age old ways are set and people uh, stick to them. That's a wonderful story. That's incredibly interesting. And can you tell us something about the resurgence of local cuisine in some of the restaurants that you went to in Murmansk? Or did you go to any on the Solovetsky Islands, for example? Yes, there was one, um, it was a cafe. I wouldn't, well, yes, there was one restaurant and one cafe. And at that cafe, I had a beautiful moment where I was able to taste the very famous herrings that uh, had once been part of the mainstay of the economy from the Solovetsky Islands. Unfortunately, the herring catch has uh, been depleted and there are very few herrings left, but we were lucky and able to taste them. They're particularly fat and delicious. So it's called Cayute Cafe, uh, very simple, but they served uh, some poached herring, and some fried herring, and then a lot of different accompaniments that I'm sure you're very familiar with, different sorts of pickled foods and uh, potato salad. And um, I'm trying to think what else, uh, some beautiful sour dough black bread, which to me really makes the Russian meal. Sorry, I just wanted to ask you something about the different salts there. Did you try salt on Sorovetsky? Because you write about salt in the book and I was wondering if you could just say something about the salt recipes you include or about one of them and does the salt taste different there? You know I wanted the salt to taste different there. <laughs> I was uh, trying to make the salt taste different there and honestly it didn't really taste uh, <laughs> significantly different. It tasted very salty and uh, <laughs> crystalline and good. Um, it was a nice salt as opposed to a just salty salt, if you know what I mean. It was very minerally and, and lovely, but I can't say that in a blind taste test I could distinguish it. <laughs> Fair enough. But could you say something about the different salts? I, as it's around Easter at this time of recording, I was looking at the Maundy salt, which is baked with with rye. Maybe you could say something about the Mondi salt. Yes, this was a real discovery for me. So it's called Mondi Thursday salt or black salt. And basically what you do is take, um, you can take the, the leaves from making kvass, which is this fermented um, beverage that is made from rye bread, or else you can just start from scratch and take rye bread and make sure it has no preservatives and toast it and then grind it, mix it with salt and water and make a slurry. 
and then you bake it at a very high temperature. Uh, it'd be 500 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not sure what that is in centigrade, but uh, you char it and take it out of the oven and it's absolutely smoking and black. And I usually race outside so that the smoke detector doesn't go off. And then once it's cooled, you pound it. Uh, traditionally, that would have been done in a mortar and pestle. You can do it in the food processor. And it's this beautiful aromatic salt that uh, was considered to be very healing and also holy. And the Russians would take it to the church on uh, Easter Sunday to be blessed by the priest. And they would keep it in a special container, a salt cellar, for use throughout the year. When people were sick, they would use it or they would use it on special occasions. Now you can just have it uh, as a, a typical finishing salt for seasoning, but all this talk about uh, charcoal and activated charcoal and what it does for the, the system, I don't know what nutritional claims are actually valid, but it's a very delicious salt. No, it's interesting what you say about um, the charcoal and the kind of health-giving qualities because that's another theme in the book that that a lot of these foods are incredibly healthy and very kind of of the moment with the fermentation techniques um and that the fermentation techniques are using lactic acid rather than vinegar um do, do you feel that i mean i was just struck by how healthy the food was and that you don't use that much sugar honey is the main sweetener there's quite a lot of butter, but you know, butter is healthy. It's a you know wholesome fat. Um, that all the carbohydrates were were complex, uh, not very little refined. Um, did did you did you find that this cuisine is a is a healthy cuisine? I really did, Clem. It uh, was striking to me. One of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to counteract the prevailing impression that Russian food is very starchy and heavy and fatty and unhealthy. And in fact, as you say, it has all of these uh, aspects of whole grains, of lacto-fermentation, of slow cooking, uh, and a lot of vegetables. And granted, throughout much of the year, they're in preserved form a lot of fresh fruits and berries in the summertime. The thing that was so extraordinary to me, it was as though I was my own case study along with my husband. Um, we went in the summertime for the first trip and were there for an entire month. And because I was researching and I also needed to taste everything because I really wanted to understand the taste of the Russian North, and the Russian hospitality on top of that, we were eating, I don't know, five meals a day and they weren't just small ones. And I wasn't getting my usual exercise and I was thinking, oh my God, we're going to absolutely roll home and we're going to feel terrible and it's burdensome and how are we going to manage this? We actually came home not having gained a pound, even though our usual habits uh, had been totally subverted, but we weren't eating any processed foods. 
and it was all whole foods and so i do think that at its base russian food is very healthy that's really interesting and have you integrated any of these dishes into your everyday life like there's quite a lot of porridge and kasha have you integrated any of these things i've been eyeing them up but i haven't i haven't got around to making them yet I have to say that I'm an absolute porridge lover and the rest of my family is not. So I can't say that it's a daily thing, but the fermented oatmeal is a real favorite of mine because it's so simple to make. You just let it sit out overnight and it has this slightly sour tang to it. And I'm also a great fan of buckwheat, which cooks up very quickly. And I usually do it in the oven because I find that it is lighter and fluffier and it takes all of 20 minutes. Uh, so instead of having rice, I would, I would go to buckwheat. Mm. I also want to mention when you said that there's very little sugar in the book, that was uh, quite a challenge for me because I have an amazing sweet tooth and I really love sugar. But I decided to try to be as, um, I don't like the word authentic, I don't think it really means anything, <laughs> but to try and be in a certain way as uh, traditional as possible. The Russians really didn't introduce sugar into their diet until the late 19th century in any significant way. And they were famous for their honey. And so I tried to make everything with honey when I could. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and um, yeah, I'm. I. I mean, I guess Dara. I. I wrote this email to you saying, "Are there any favourite dishes?" But maybe we've covered enough. I mean, was that? Is there a dish you'd like to bring the attention to Pushkin House listeners to? Um, I think that one of my favourite recipes in the book that might seem foreign to some listeners, but that is super easy and it, it really has become a summertime staple in our house, is the raspberry kvass. So I mentioned kvass earlier as this fermented, lightly fermented beverage that is made from rye bread, but you can also make it from fruit. And I know that the UK has beautiful, beautiful raspberries, or you could try it with other berries. And you get a, a good gallon of raspberries, you add some honey to them and some water and boil them, allow that to cool, and then add a little bit of yeast and ferment it on the countertop for about, I think, 12 hours. I would have to double check the recipe to see what I say. But it turns into this beautiful pink, sparkling, effervescent, uh, fruity, ever so slightly sour. It's like a, it's like a champagne almost with a, a pale raspberry flavor and it's quite beautiful. So that has become a standby. But um, no, that raspberry crust sounds wonderful because I have to say that in my experience in Russia, I've always tried to like crust and I've never managed to because, but like, maybe I should try making one from your book and, and I might, I might um, surprise myself. Yeah, I'm also, kvass is not my go-to drink, but uh, the raspberry kvass, I absolutely adore. Okay, I'll definitely give it a go. 
Um, well, Dara, thank you so much for um, being in conversation with us today. It's a real delight to, um, to talk to you. Thank you so much, and I'm really thrilled that you like the book. No, we do, and I know it's for sale in shops in, in, in Britain because I, I saw it before the lockdown began. So I know that you can get it, um, either, but you can get it online now. So I encourage our listeners very much to, to find uh, Beyond the North Wind by Dara Goldstein. Thank you. This episode of the Pushkin House podcast, presented by our director, Clem Cecil, was recorded on the 13th of April 2020 and was edited and produced for Pushkin House by me, Rafi Hay. Our thanks to Dara Goldstein and 10 Speed Press. For more new content and archival material from the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre, please check out our blog, where we'll be sharing Dara's recipe for raspberry kvass, and subscribe to our newsletter at pushkinhouse.org. Thanks for listening.